Tonight on Arena, we look back at the best of our Where Do I Begin series. And welcome to the final arena of 2021. Where Do I Begin was a series that we ran throughout the year, exploring iconic artists from various genres. We took the opportunity to dig a little deeper into well-known artists, filmmakers, writers and performers by asking the question, where do I begin with? So we'll begin this evening with the world of French electronic music duo Daft Punk, who sadly announced their split in February of this year. The breakup marked the end of a 20-year partnership between Thomas Bangalter and Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo. We asked musician and producer Dahi Odroni to take a look back at the music of Daft Punk and I began by asking Dahi if their album Discovery was a turning point for him in terms of his style of music. Yeah, absolutely. Like when I was a teenager, I was in a kind of a load of different rock and indie bands and stuff like that. And I always kind of had listened to kind of that type of music for a long time. I never really listened to any dance music. And then, I mean, when I came across Discovery in 2001, it was just such a massive kind of turning point for me. It was suddenly like dance music that kind of really, really made sense to me. It was so unbelievably euphoric. Like Discovery is like if, if somebody had never heard dance music before, Discovery is the album that you should show them because it, it has this incredible kind of um, thesis for dance music, which is basically, you know, you find a sample or a loop or a repeated phrase and you say it long enough and sharp enough and kind of repetitive enough that it becomes this big, euphoric, profound mm. kind of feeling. And Discovery is an absolutely perfect example for that. And, and you know, once I started getting into dance music and kind of got into the club scene in Galway and... Uh, when I was younger and, and joined college and stuff, you know, Daft Punk was this kind of, it was one of the most influential things that I ever came across. And ever since then, you know, I mean, everything that I do has kind of been influenced by, by Daft Punk since. Yeah. You know? uh, and, and one more time from 2001's Discovery, it was a, an Eddie Johns song, a, a song called More Spell on You that Daft right. Punk sampled. Let's have a listen to, to that song and then we'll get a sense of just at the end of this clip, what exactly it was that Daft Punk did with the sample to give us the basis for one more time. So how would you describe, Dahi, for us, what, what Daft Punk did there in terms of taking the original piece of music and then sampling it in a way that they, they really do make it their own? It's it's really amazing. Like, I mean, they're a perfect example of this idea of sampling, which, you know, throughout time, kind of people have kind of mixed feelings on it. You know, some people kind of say that it's like lifting something that somebody else created mm. and kind of robbing it almost. But like Daft Punk are a perfect example of this thing where you take something beautiful and you rebuild it in another style and make something else beautiful out of it, which I think is a really, really good thing to do, you know. And throughout that kind of album, you'll hear it like there's littered with just like loads of these amazing, like kind of almost unheard of kind of samples from the 70s and 80s that they took in then they mixed them with these like really really intense hard french house kind of kick drums and and almost like these big heavy live drums behind it and suddenly it has this like repetitive big like build up of kind of euphoria and like i mean you just have to listen to even that tiny sample and mm. like I, I find it hard to imagine that anybody couldn't enjoy that you know and i know you you guys played digital love last night yeah. and like it's such a like you just have to turn it on i mean it doesn't really need that much explanation you know it's just so positive and uplifting and happy, you know. Well, you said it doesn't need any explanation, so why don't we just play a little bit more <laughs> of One More Time, the song itself. There you go. Yeah, it's, it is it is hard to kind of come out of because it does make you, uh, Dahi, who's speaking to us this, this evening, Dahi Odoni, about uh, Daft Punk. Euphoria is the is the term that you use. Now, I've been given out to for you saying these things like this before, but is it more than just dance music? Is there something else going on that that lifts it above just, you know, you want to get out there and, and shake your booty on the floor? Is there more to it than that, Dahi? 
I mean, from from start to bottom, like Daft Punk, you know, I was kind of thinking about it today about how, you know, they were fantastic producers and fantastic musicians as well. But like the thing that really kind of set them apart, I think, is this kind of idea that they were a true artist. You know, it was kind of a very 360 kind of presentation. You know, I mean, even if you stick with Discovery, you know, when that album came out, they also released this anime music video that was like kind of the entire album done as a film called Interstellar 5555. And it was just like this amazing like anime, like artistry mm. kind of animated style. And it was around that same time in 2001, 2000, where um, they kind of technically became robots. <laughs> so like <laughs> essentially what, what the, the story is, is, is about basically they're the only victims of the millennium bug. So when the millennium yeah. bug hit, they were in studio and one of their machines blew up and they uh, accidentally turned into robots, you know, yeah. and like that, the whole the whole robot thing is like extremely iconic. You know what I mean? Like you see those pictures and you almost even need you to see an outline of the of the helmets. And like, you you know exactly who we're talking about immediately. Yeah. And it's kind of it's one of the really, really special things as well. There's a there's a HBO series called The New Pope. Um, and basically in, in it, there's one incredible scene where the Pope is trying to describe kind of the most important people in each of their fields of works. And he kind of describes like J.D. Salinger. He describes uh, Kubrick and Banksy. And, you know, the fact that they were kind of hidden and the the, the real person inside the kind yeah. of the art was hidden. And like the, the fact that you just you, you're, it kind of draws you in because you want to find out more. But it also lets the art speak. So it like brings the art forward. So you, you're less worried about the character of the person who making it and more concerned with the art itself which yeah. I think is really really great you know? Yeah I suppose it's quite handy that the, um, the explosion that created the robots happened on, <laughs> I heard this came across this today September the 9th 1999 at 9.09 <laughs> in the morning quite yeah. handy to, that all those nines were there together but I think that and that's where the, 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 the trademark helmets started there obviously with this explosion that created the robots but that anonymity Dahi it's not just a gimmick they were very clear that they didn't want their personalities to get in the way of the music. It was about actually putting the material itself, the music itself, up front. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a very considered thing. You know, um, I've heard a lot in the last couple of days about how kind of savvy in the music industry, Daft Punk are one considered kind of like extremely savvy when it comes to the kind of the music industry side of things. You know, like they were well known when they signed their first um, uh, record deal with Virgin. You know, mm. they 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 made the point that they they wanted to own all their own masters. And this was kind of almost unheard of at the time, you know, so they owned all of their own music and then kind of licensed it out to Virgin. So it was like a very, very strange deal that people wouldn't have usually heard of before. But it just meant that they had complete creative control and they just had to mm. rock up to the label afterwards and kind of go, this is what we're doing. Yeah, well, um, wasn't one of their fathers, though, involved in the record business previous to that? And I think <laughs> I think he kind of gave them the heads up on make sure you know who owns what. And it was very, exactly, it was very yeah. good advice. They had a really good like kind of background of kind of who who to, who they met in the music scene and kind of how they built it up, you know. But it was like you know, like that's kind of the thing about them is that like you know, again, there's like this kind of 360 kind of feel where like everything they did was extremely smart mm. and kind of powerful, you know. Um, and I think that kind of really stood to them as well because you know you get you start getting up to kind of the the live album Alive, which they did a little later on, and 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 they kind of did this huge show in Coachella. Um, a little later on that was this like amazing kind of show with a whole pile of LED lights and they were up on this big pyramid and you know they had they had borrowed a load of money from the festival to kind of build this show and they had kind of come out of nowhere and performed this like absolutely amazing show that kind of really really changed kind of dance music and live dance music as it was and kind of really kind of Mm. The really interesting thing about it was they really kind of pushed out a lot of dance music into kind of middle America and kind of introduced dance music to America, even though it had actually come from America. But they introduced it to America in this very influential way. So they were hugely influential as well, you know. Their third album, Human After All. Now, for many, that kind of wasn't the, the top of... The, we're only talking four studio albums, so that, you mm -hmm. know, it's amazing that they had such an influence with four albums in, in, that, in that way. But even though that album wasn't hugely uh, well critically received, it was very important to you. Yeah, it was very important to me and I think a lot of musicians around the place as well. Like Human After All is a very interesting album because, you know, Discovery had come out and it was like this big, like world dominating album. It was just absolutely massive and they had broken through to kind of um, the general person, like everybody knew who Daft Punk was. And then they released Human After All, which was kind of made in about six or seven weeks. And like, it's this like 
really hard French house, like extremely distorted synths and kind of almost kind of rocky in a certain way. And like, I don't think people were expecting it all. I think a lot of people and journalists included were kind of a bit flummoxed and gave it kind of fairly bad reviews and stuff. But the interesting thing about it is that like from a musician and a producer standpoint, it was massively influential. Like the sounds that they were using kind of changed the face of, of house music and especially French house music, you know, like straight after you got these like huge um, artists like Justice and digitalism who came up through and you can just hear the influence from them and then even further afield you know when you get into kind of the new york music scene you know i think most people can agree that like lcd sound system and bands like that were like hugely influenced by daft punk as well you know yeah you mentioned the fact that you know obviously their their influence at home is is would the attitude at home for them being France, would the attitude or the way, the status they have, is it different in France where dance and electronic music are so important, obviously? Uh, it, it, would it be different there to, it, to the way it is internationally? I mean, I'd imagine that the closest thing you could probably compare it to here would be U2, you know? I mean, there was such a massive, like, world-dominating act that I think it was, like, a massive deal. And, you know, I guess they're they're also quite Parisian mm. in their kind of style and influence and how they do it, you know? Like, the, the kind of the artistry of it is quite Parisian yeah. as well. So I think they, they do feel like a real Parisian band. And I, I would imagine that most of France are incredibly proud of them, you know? Yeah. You, you mentioned there that, you know, we haven't heard from them in a while. OK, Random Access Memories, 2013 was the last album but there have been a lot of collaborations in, in the meantime Pharrell Nile Rogers, Chili Gonzalez Georgia Moroder so it's not as if they disappeared totally off the scene it's just that maybe Daft Punk the duo wasn't as as present yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, they they came across as people who weren't pressured to kind of do anything, really. So they kind of just let their kind of passions kind of lead them on. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I think you can kind of see that in the way, say, like they did the the, the remake of Tron was a very good example. Yeah, the soundtrack of, like, for that, the Disney uh, remake. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a, like a fantastic, like kind of like um, uh, orchestrated kind of big film um, soundtrack. And, you know, they worked on that for a very, very long time. Very, very different to their own stuff, I would say, as well. You know, they're kind of answering to Disney, this massive company as well. And I think they learned a lot from that. And then, I mean, probably some of the most influential stuff that they did was when they worked with Kanye West, you know, um, some of Kanye, Kanye West's absolutely best songs were, were he, they, Daft Punk had a hand in, you know, like Black Skinhead and I Am A God. You know, those tracks are absolutely probably the best thing that Kanye West has ever done. And you can you can hear that Daft Punk sound on them, which is fantastic, you know. So they kind of let their kind of passions lead them. And I think that's what Random Access Memories was really all about as well. You know, they were so passionate about 70s and 80s music mm. that they they made this big nostalgic backdrop of an album um, and kind of a real big nod to the greats. I think, you know, that was kind of what that album was all about, you know. Although you're, you're not a huge fan, is it true <laughs> to say, of Random Access Memories, the last album? Yeah, I mean, I think if I had to be critical of Daft Punk, I would say Random Access Memories is probably my least favorite album. I think, I mean, it is the, like from a production standpoint, it is absolutely incredible. Like it sounds absolutely perfect. You get that on a vinyl record on some good speakers and it just sounds absolutely mm. pristine, like really, really gorgeous. But the one thing I will say is that like it is so nostalgic um, and I don't know that it really did anything completely brand new. You know, it was very much this trip back true memory lame almost like a like a museum album or something like that you know um so the the thing i like about the other albums is that you know they 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 took these kind of older samples and older styles and then they just like kind of forced them through this kind of lens of the future kind of thing and added their own french kind of house yeah. style to it which was really amazing i don't know if random access memories has as much of that you know well actually let's go back then a bit in time to 1997 and and homework just before we finish up I mean, I was looking at this today and it doesn't look like something that was made over 20 years ago in, in for <laughs> sure. The, the video, the Spike Jones video for Daft Punk, yeah. it's, it's just give, give us, try to describe what happens in that. Yeah, like the, the Spike Jones video for Defunk is kind of like, you know, it's this uh, this anim anthropomorphic dog who's kind of walking through the streets and everything. And like that video like was incredible because it hit at this exact time where music videos was so influential, you know, this kind of MTV era. And it was just a huge thing. And I think anybody who lived around that time who was watching MTV at the time, like that video and the Michelle Gondry video for Around the World as well were just so iconic. And, it, and just another example again is how they weren't just producers, they weren't just musicians, they were real visionary with working with artists, you know, it's great.
Funk from the album Homework and it was Dahio Droni telling us where to begin with Daft Punk. Next we go to Russia for a guide to the work of playwright Anton Chekhov. With productions of his four great plays continuing to feature in the repertoires of theatres all over the world, Chekhov's place as a writer who influenced the literature and theatre of the 20th century and 21st is undiminished. His works were groundbreaking in terms of their form, their clarity of language, their lack of judgment of the characters and their honest exploration of the lives of women. Helen Meany joined us to tell us where to begin with Chekhov and I began by asking Helen to give us some background on his work and how he pushed literature forward. He was born in 1860 um, in a small town on the Sea of Azov, uh, in Ukraine, and his his grandfather was a serf who was emancipated. So this is really interesting thing about Chekhov that he did not come from uh, the aristocratic background that some of his the previous generation, such as you know Tolstoy and Turgenev, he he very much had to make his own way. The family you know got in, into terrible debt and uh, moved to Moscow. Um, Chekhov finished his schooling and then joined them and went to uh, studied medicine, graduated mm. as a qualified as a doctor. So he, he was a medical doctor. Um, that was his first profession with sort of a bit of writing on the side. And, <laughs> and he's actually started writing comic sketches, um, little pieces for literary journals and magazines while he was a doctor. So it, he didn't take his writing talent initially he didn't yeah. take it very seriously and then uh, you know realized i thought was yeah. encouraged to keep going yeah and and i guess the the the, the doctor aspect of things has, has two thoughts come to mind first of all the number of doctors that there are in his various plays i think there's probably one in in most of them but the other thing is a, a quote from him that i came across today um about about a writer has to be as objective as a chemist. So he really did think of writing, not just in terms of, and and I suppose when we come to playwriting, spelt as it is, W-R-I-G-H-T, playwriting, he Mm. really did believe in this idea of the thing having to be wrought, having to be formed properly. That's right. But but you're you're right about that sense of that almost scientific... Um, empirical outlook that was part of his training, but so he he was he had a detachment and that idea of you know objectivity, and 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 therefore it, it comes out in the stories in the way that he 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 stands back and he just describes things as they are rather than as maybe you would want them to be or the reader would like them to be. So there's a real lack of there's a sort of a clear-eyed, mm. unjudgmental aspect to the way he writes. He doesn't condemn his characters, whether either in the short stories or the or the plays. He doesn't actually moralize or he doesn't preach. He's very you know, he's not didactic. So all of that really marks him out. And and in terms of the, the form of the short stories, they're often very open ended. They're often left unresolved, you know, with questions at the mm. end unanswered that the life of the character is just going on and he leaves them there almost like a, a camera pulling back you know <laughs> and this is why they, they they seemed so new and strange at the time and what about then the move towards theatre and how important is it that when we when we think about theatre we think about what was happening uh, in terms of Moscow art and Stanislav uh, Stanislavski Yes, so that that he didn't that kind of came about his his incredibly artistically fruitful relationship with the Moscow Art Theatre uh, came after he'd had a number of terrible flops actually. So um, mainly in in Saint Petersburg, and he the Seagull his his very the first play that we now think of you know the, the first of the Great Four, it actually opened in Saint Petersburg and was disastrously received both by audiences and by by critics and and that that really stung Chekhov and it was actually two years later that. He was invited uh, to give the play to the Moscow Art Centre, which was run by Stanislavski. I guess it's interesting because the, the starting point that you give us uh, as one of those big plays is, in fact, the seagull is the one you, you would suggest we start with. And it, it has that. It has the failed playwright <laughs> within it. Yes, he puts a little bit of his extreme dissatisfaction with the sort of, I suppose, the conventions, the established theatre of, of the day, and the conservatism in terms of the, the 
there was sort of particular forms in like melodrama or there was farce he wasn't interested in that and he gives some of his some of his ideas about you know contemporary at the time theater to the young to the to one of the young heroes of the play Constantine and then within the seagull there's a performance of the play within the play which is the, a play by Constantine which is deliberately meant to be a sort of a provocation mm. to the older generation yeah, and in fact, the, the clip that I have features that precise, uh, the scene where he has shown the, the play to the mother and the assembled audience. But this is in, in a performance from Corn Exchange, a co-production with the Dublin Theatre Festival in 2016. And interestingly, Constantine in this particular production is Constance. There was a, a gender switch. We might talk a little bit about that afterwards. But um, you'll hear you'll hear the response of uh, Derva Crotty as Arcadina uh, to the play and Jane McGrath as Constance and Stephen Brennan as her uncle. That's enough! Stop it! Enough! Stop it! Nina! Nina! (laughs) I'm sorry, I forgot. Only the select few are permitted to make art or to try to. I have tiptoed on the sacred preserve of proper artists. I mean, for me to... I was... Dear, you, you really shouldn't hurt a young person's feelings like that. But what did I do? You hurt her feelings. But she said it was going to be a joke. I thought it was a joke. Yeah, but still. Oh, so now she's written a work of art. Hmm? This performance, this smell wasn't all a joke. Oh, no. She wanted to teach us how to write and to act. It's too much. These snide attacks at my expense. These little niggling insults. Why should I have to put up with them? She's a conceited, difficult child. She was only trying to please you. Oh, really? Then why didn't you do an ordinary play instead of making us suffer this indulgent prank? I mean, I'd play along with anything for the sake of a joke. But not this. Not pretensions to new creative forms. A new era in art. I mean, please, it's so passé. There are no new forms in this stuff. Just a display of bad temper and gimmicks. There you go. Derva Crotty as Arcadine and Jane McGrath playing the part of Constance and Stephen Brennan as her uncle in a clip there from the Corn Exchange, co-production with Dublin Theatre Festival from 2016, directed by Annie Ryan and adapted by Michael West and Annie Ryan. And what I find particularly interesting in terms of Chekhov there, you can hear how it all speaks directly to his time and how, you know, the style of theatre, I suppose, that Stanislavski and Chekhov were bringing in this more naturalistic style in some ways with ensemble, big ensemble playing uh, and very believable characters with very complex psychologies, all of that very new at the time. But there we have the, the gender switch in that production from 2016 and all the same things seem to hold up in, in 20, well, 2021 now, but 2016 then. Yes, I, I, th- I thought it worked really well. In fact, I, I thought this adaptation was so fresh because it also brings out the humour. It's a very, very, very funny. Um, but, but that key, key theme really of young, young people trying to find radical new forms, you know, of, of writing, of theatre, it's all about the difficulty of, of saying something new. Um, it's all trying to find new ways of, of living and being. And it's sort of how the older generation tries to stifle it. I mean, uh, Arcadina there, she derides, uh, it Mm. happens to be her daughter. And in some ways, the fact that it's her daughter in this version made it even more crushing because that sense of mother-daughter, her her feeling of being really threatened by Mm. her daughter's talent you know the, the rise because you know the rise of, of a young person doing something completely different and in this production the the the, the play it's not really a play it's they, they call it a thing <laughs> um and the, you know it's, it's all laptop and video and headphones and of course this is this is just not you know mm. this is not what this this kind of great actress of the old school yeah thinks that the theater is you know yeah. so it's an age old i mean it feels incredibly modern and fresh yeah. actually the seagull and the final play then that you 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 you're setting out for us as our starting point uh, three sisters from 1901 what are we talking about here 
Well, it's again, you know, characters cooped up in a claustrophobic situation, mm. but this is, uh, this is three young sisters who are just, who are, you know, grieving for the death of their father, uh, and they're in their 20s, and they're in a small Russian garrison town, uh, kind of suspended, not quite sure what to do next. They want, they, they were originally from Moscow, and, and they, their father was in the army, so they're in this kind of outpost, as far as they're concerned. And they are, again, it's a bit like the seagull, and there's a lot of unrequited love. This is an adaptation where it's moved to Nigeria, and obviously the three sisters want to get back to Lagos. And immediately it just seems to sit in this new setting without any difficulty at all. Let's have a listen. If Papa hadn't taken command of the brigade in this tiny town and we stayed in Lagos, he would still be alive. Oh, you don't know that. Ah, 11 years since we left our city of dreams. Oh, you are the eldest child. Why didn't you say something to change Papa's mind? Instead, you kept quiet like a loyal little wife. Papa wanted us to root ourselves in our Igbo traditions. Hey, in a worry, away from all the other tribes. To escape, what did he call it? <laughs> cultural erosion. Mm-hmm. Colonial cultural, cultural erosion. erosion. <laughs> and the British too, yes. He wanted us to be who we really are. Mm. So do you now regret us leaving? Yes. <laughs> no. I just wish Oweri was more cosmopolitan like Lagos, that we could be where history is made. <laughs> ah, these locals still argue about who grew the best yams five years ago. <laughs> A scene there from Chekhov's The Three Sisters from the English National Theatre. And it was Helen Meany telling us where to begin with Anton Chekhov. After the break, Amanda Coogan talks to us about performance artist Marina Abramovic. Welcome back to the final arena of 2021 and the best of our Where Do I Begin series. Marina Abramovich, the most famous performance artist in the world, was born in Belgrade in 1946 to parents who were communist partisans, national heroes and high profile members of General Tito's government. She found her great cause in the art world, pushing her body to extremes since the early 1970s with provocative pieces that made headlines and won her awards, including the Golden Lion at the 1997 Venice Biennale. Over the years, performance art has become more established in the mainstream and Abramovich now calls herself the grandmother of the art form. I asked Amanda Coogan, a performance artist herself, how she would describe Abramovich's art form. Well, it's really performance art is a great umbrella term, but it's really using the body as the material of your art making. So if, you, you know, uh, uh, Abramovich comes from the visual arts tradition, and if we think in really basic terms that you go in and you see marble sculptures, uh, uh, figurative sculptures of, of people, we know them from, you know, Greek, temp- Greek and Roman temples. Mm. So in a performance art moment, that wouldn't be made of marble or wood. It would be an actual, real-life human being there. So it brings in this amazing dynamic that you're not considering an object uh, as a piece of art. You're considering another human being as a piece of art. So there's all of the dynamism of recognising another human being there. And really, Marina's work really centres, especially her late work, really centres around that exciting human-to-human contact or what she calls this exchange of energy. Yeah, that human-to-human contact, vitally important. Let's listen to what she has... we all know about it now, don't we? Let's not say the (laughs) C-word. Yeah, we're we're dying for a bit of human contact. Let's listen to Marina Abramovich and her own um, thoughts on performance art. Welcome to the performance world. Performance is mental and physical construction that performer make in a specific time in the space in the front of audience and then energy dialogue happen. The audience and the performer make the piece together. And the difference between performance and theater is huge. In the theater, the knife is not the knife and the blood is just ketchup. In the performance, the blood is the material and the razor blade or knife is the tool. It's all about being there in the real time and you can't rehearse performance because you can't do many of these times things twice, ever. 
That's Marina Abramovich describing in her own inimitable way. I mean, there's so many to so many things to parse from mm. there because, uh, you know, do you have to be in the live moment experience, experiencing the performance for a performance of art piece to continue to live? And we, you know, we've been really confronted with that this year. Yeah. And it it draws the question: How would we have known? How would I have known about her 197? 70s work like all the rhythm series of those things I wasn't born then or yeah. just about I might have been one or two <laughs> so it actually lives in the conversation around performance Rest Energy from 1980 premiered at Rosk at the National Gallery just explain what was involved this was herself and her partner Was he were they married at the time or not I'm not sure well, they were partners in both art and life, Marina Abramovich and Ulai, as they were mm. known. And they made uh, one of the most seminal pieces of performance art in 1980 in Rosk, this great exhibition that um, we had here over a couple of times, uh, 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 every four years, I think, in the 80s. And in Rosk, they were in the National Gallery. They premiered this piece called Rest Energy. So they took a bow and arrow, and Ulai pulled the arrow backwards. The arrow's point was, uh, the point of the arrow rather, was aimed at Marina's heart. And she pulled the other part of the bow. So they're held taut, almost in a V-shape against each other, holding this bow and arrow uh, taut and one slip of the <laughs> finger. Uh, and Marina uh, would have been piercing with the arrow in the heart. And so uh, I talked to Patrick T. Murphy a few years ago about this uh, piece, uh, and he was an eyewitness. He was the chairperson of Rosk at the time, and he mm. said it was so tense and okay. so intense. It was a performance like a haiku poem that was, uh, uh, I think he says it was about five minutes. And she had, they had microphoned their heartbeats. So they had microphones just on their chest. So the room was filled with this pulsating, yeah. throbbing heart, heart monitor soundtrack almost. I wanted to go back to that rhythm series. Uh, there was a whole series of them. And the one that we're going to t talk about her, listen to her talk about here is Rhythm Zero. But mm, I wanted to give a sense of the one, in, and I'm sure people who saw that in Dublin still remembered. I was the same. My heart's kind of beating thinking about it. <laughs> Never mind yeah, being really, present. Uh, Patrick let's, let's, Murphy was amazing mm. talking about it. And he said the place was yeah. packed. Here she is now talking about the basic premise then behind, uh, is it Rhythm Zero that uh, is, is yeah, the first piece from 74? From 74. Now, let's go back in time. It's 1974. There is the gallery somewhere in the world. And there is a young girl, age 23, standing in the middle of the space. In the front of her is a table. On the table, there are 76 objects for pleasure and for the pain. Some of objects are a glass of water, a coat, a shoe, a rose, but also the knife, the razor blade, the hammer, and the pistol with one bullet. There is instructions which says, I'm an object. You can use everything on the table on me. I'm taking all responsibility, even killing me. And the time is six hours. So there's Marina Abramovich describing the setup for Rhythm Zero, her, her famous early piece from 1974. Rhythm Zero is some place to start in some ways. Like it's, it's all laid out. What happens after that? Six hours, she's sitting there. What, yeah. do, what do those who come in do? I mean, this is the, in the context of all those great uh, psychological experiments of what people do if they, you know, want to inflict pain and stuff like that. So she describes it. She says the first six, uh, the first couple of hours, everyone was terribly gentle. And, you know, they uh, fed her honey and they rubbed her with 
feathers and all these things. And then it got crazier and crazier. And I, I mean, not to be too gossipy, but she used to hold this up. At, I studied with her. I did a master's with her. And she used to hold this up as the never trust the audience kind of <laughs> example because they ended up cutting off all her clothes, stuck thorns under her skin. Uh, and and one of the lads, one of the men in the audience, rather, uh, aimed the gun at her head. And, and this it was just the- became extremely aggressive. Uh, so the audience kind of stopped treating her like uh, an empathetic other, yeah. like they started they started treating her like an object you know which was the test of it when she talks about this exchange of energy between uh, the performer and the audience it is a very empathetic one was there any kind of you know safety word in the midst of all of this i'm thinking about both rhythm zero and indeed rest energy the one with the bow mm. you know with the with the arrow basically against her heart you know, was there any health and safety wouldn't let it happen today? I would guess. Actually, I tell you, as a performance artist, health and safety is terribly, terribly difficult, especially as an endurance masochistic performance artist. I think that you can you can rest assured that rest energy was not health and safety checked. I now I just before coming on to you, you know, I was I was officially googling uh, rhythm so that I wasn't giving you any different information and it does say that it went on for six hours now my stories from her that she told us was once it got so super aggressive and someone put a gun to her head that the gallery curator came in threw everybody out and stopped the performance at about five and a half hours in but actually it is about this risk it's about and a lot of her work is bringing us to the edge of that risk-taking, that if we're witnessing somebody um, going through a very challenging either durational piece that's just so long that it becomes very, very difficult, or that they are, you know, breaking through a pain threshold within the body, it is... Uh, it, it is quite tremendous to experience that and what? see that and witness that because you're implicated because it's another person. One piece that we definitely must talk about before we finish up, uh, Amanda, is The Artist is Present, which was at MoMA in New York in 2011. She sat in such... In, well, you tell us what she did. Well, you know... This is the piece that maybe people might have heard of. This artist who sat in the Museum of Modern Art in New York for three months and invited people to sit in front of her. And you think, what the heck? You know, this is really testing the limits of what art is. You know, and this is the very sculptural element that I was talking about earlier. So she sat there um, and literally there was no speaking and people walked in took the chair opposite her and they were instructed to just look her in the eyes. Stay as long as you want. And Marina says that at the the beginning of the three months, there was hardly anybody there. She had a major retrospective of her work upstairs in MoMA and everyone wanted to go up and see her old work. And we're kind of ignoring her downstairs in the atrium. And then it started to just roll like snowball Mm. until towards the end of this there was queues outside around the block in MoMA and people would sleep overnight to try and get in the queue to sit with Marina and there's uh there's uh lots and lots of stuff you can google online and seeing people I cried with Marina Abramovich when when they sat in that space because it was very bright, I'll tell you, I sat in that space and some tears came out and it wasn't because I was looking at Marina. I've done that many, many times. Is the light. Uh, that's, yeah, um, there was something in my eye. Amanda Coogan there telling us where to begin with a Marina Abramovich. After the break, Rory Cashin on director and screenwriter Wes Anderson. And so to our final choice from our Where Do I Begin series for 2021. Wes Anderson, the American director and screenwriter, is known for the distinctive visual aesthetic of his quirky comedies and for his work with actors like Owen Wilson, Bill Murray, Adrian Brody and more recently, Tilda Swinton. He has developed a cult following in the film industry. Anderson's colour palette and unique forms of storytelling are admired by critics and fans worldwide and he is cited by many as a modern day example of the auteur. 
Rory Cashin joined us to tell us where to begin with the work of Wes Anderson. And I began by asking Rory how important was Anderson's meeting up with Owen Wilson? Yeah, pretty much uh, they met in college while uh, Wes Anderson was studying to get his degree in philosophy. Um, and they became roommates. And Wes Anderson at the time was a projectionist in a cinema, which is, I guess, part of the reason why he fell in love with movie making. It's the exact same story as me. I was a projectionist while I was in college as well and moved into film journalism. Um, and then they became best friends. And Owen and his brother, Luke Wilson, uh, the, two, the three of them worked together on a short film called Bottle Rocket which then became Wes Anderson's first feature film. He's worked with Bill Murray nine times now. So Wes Anderson has a habit of, if he likes you, he'll keep you around yeah. indefinitely. Um, and yeah. I guess if you if you get people to come back again and again, and people of the calibre of Bill Murray and Owen Wilson, well then you must be doing something right to, to, for in terms of your filmmaking uh, for the actors who are involved with you. And like absolutely, like you you can tell everyone in, it's a bit like, he reminds me a little bit of Tarantino in that everyone wants to work with him. Uh, and he also has like a very specific aesthetic, a very specific way of telling his stories. Uh, and he, he amasses these incredible casts. Like the, I've, I've written the one down for the French Dispatch and I'll be here for the next hour just listing yeah. the amount of famous people yeah. who are in it. But like he, he's getting everyone out. Like he has Sir Sharon uh, coming back a number of times now, which is just like the first of, I think, and I hope, uh, Irish talent he's, he's working with. Uh, but yeah, like it's it's incredible the amount of people who not only want to work with him but are willing to do tiny, tiny roles and do it over and over again. Um, you mentioned uh, Bottle Rocket, which was first of all a short and then expanded out into a into a, a feature film. Owen Wilson, part of that film, but that film admired by Scorsese. Did, mm. did, what did Scorsese? What what did he admire so much in the making of that film? What was its aesthetic that made people like Scorsese sit up? I think it was the one-two punch of Bottle Rocket and then his second film, Rushmore, that really got Scorsese's attention. He was doing an interview in Esquire and there's always a, the question of like, who's the next Spielberg? Who's the next Kubrick? Mm. And he was asked to his face, who do you think the next Martin Scorsese is? And he said, Wes Anderson. Just because he had such a strong stylistic vibe, just because he knew exactly how to storytell and make character first and get amazing performances out of these actors. So it was after Rushmore that Scorsese said, this is the one you need to keep an eye on. Because Rushmore was his first collaboration with Bill Murray. Uh, we had Jason Schwartzman, I think, co-wrote the, the screenplay with him, who is uh, the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, so there's a lot, and there's a lot of like family ties in there because mm. I know uh, Wes Anderson works a lot with Roman Coppola who is Francis Ford Coppola's son as well um, so that was like the first step towards a very productive relationship between the three of them and then once Scorsese gave the seal of approval it was just it was a yeah. way for, for Wes Anderson because the next one was Royal Tannenbaums and I think that was the one that everyone finally was like ah this is the guy and funny you should mention all those father-son relationships that's a, that's a recurring theme in the work of Anderson yeah, there's 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 a certain amount of capers and hijinks and missing people and things suddenly going missing from like rich people's safes. They're like, I had a very important item, it's gone missing, or someone has just lost a family member, and that kind of comes into the fore with Royal Tannenbaums, where Gene Hackman is the father who's been missing for years and comes back mm. to into the folds to try to. Uh, rebuild relationships with all his uh, family members. Yeah, you, you, you're suggesting to us in terms of a route into Anderson, though, that we, we might leave Tannenbaums to the end, but we should start with Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. Probably his most, certainly in terms of box, most box office friendly movie, would that be fair to say? I think so, yeah. I think it's it's his most recent live action movie before French Dispatch. Uh, it headlines uh, Ray Fiennes, who, if you've seen In Bruges or if you've seen uh, Hail Caesar with the Coen Brothers, he is a phenomenal comedic actor, and I think that's not tapped into enough. And Wes Anderson absolutely gets into that vein with Ray Fiennes here, and he steals the show so completely. And considering that uh, the rest of the cast is filled with Tilda Swinton and Jeff Goldblum and Adrian Brody and all these actors and actresses that Wes Anderson uses over and over again, Ray Fiennes just folds into it so perfectly. And it is a fantastic like 
constantly funny comedy. And it, that thing that you're saying about actors prepared to come and play a small role to the Grand Budapest Hotel is perfect for that because it's an hotel. So people can come <laughs> yeah. and go, they can stay for a night or two and then disappear or they can be long-term people working in the hotel or living in the hotel. Let's listen to a scene um, and, and uh, Fines plays the, the concierge mm. here, uh, Monsieur Gustave, and he's looking for a new lobby boy. He's interviewing uh, Tony Revolori, Zero, the character here, as they walk through the bustling lobby of the Grand Budapest Hotel. Who are you? I'm Zero, sir, the new lobby boy. Zero, you say? Yes, sir. Well, I've never heard of you, never laid eyes on you. Who hired you? Mr. Mosher, sir. Mr. Mosher? Yes, Monsieur Gustav. Am I to understand you've surreptitiously hired this young man in the position of a lobby boy? He's been engaged for a trial period, pending your approval, of course. Uh, perhaps, yes. Thank you, Mr. Mosher. You're most welcome, Monsieur Gustav. You're now going to be officially interviewed. Should I go and light the candle first, sir? What? The no. Experience. Hotel Kinski, kitchen boy, six months. Hotel Berlitz, mop and broom boy, three months. Before that, I was a skillet scrubber. Experience in the zero. Thank you again, Mr. Gustav. Straighten that cap, Anatole. The pleasure's mine, Herr Schneider. Mr. Esposter. These are not acceptable. I fully agree. Education. I studied reading and spelling. I started my primary school. I almost finished. Education, zero. Now it's exploded. Good morning, Cicero. Call the goddamn plumber. This afternoon, Monsieur Pistel. Will that fail for our legal? What on hell is this? Not now. Family. Zero. Zero, played there by Tony Revolori and Monsieur Gustave, played by Ray Fiennes in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, Rory Cashin with us this evening uh, with our Where Do I Begin with Wes Anderson spot. I, that film in many ways, Grand Budapest Hotel, gives us a real sense of Wes, a, a particular aspect of Wes Anderson's mm. aesthetic. First of all, the music there. Music is hugely important uh, and it's running right underneath that scene. Uh, but the, the visual aspect of the Grand Budapest Hotel in particular, it, it's, it's really extraordinary. Yeah, the, the reason why I think this is the perfect way in is because I consider this to be Anderson firing on all cylinders, even though, as you said, that the music is, is fantastic in this uh, and it's Alexander Desplat, I think, and he won the Oscar for it. And interestingly, most of his previous films are soundtracks. They're, they really mm. highlight a particular artist. Um, and this is the first one that kind of had its own unique Original score. score. Uh, and it ended up winning the Oscar. And it, it worked fantastically well. And I think this is his first one as well to actually win Oscars. It was nominated for nine and it won four. Anderson hasn't won any for writing or directing, even though he's been nominated for seven so far. Um, but yeah, this is, it's and this, as you, again, as you mentioned, the style of this, the, the, the unique kind of cinematography and art direction and costume design and even the way he frames everything, like it's 90 degrees head-on action and sometimes pulls away to show this almost like diorama of a, of a, a cut down yeah. into, into the hotel and you see things happening in different rooms simultaneously. It's phenomenal. It's almost, you know, it, it isn't animation, but it could so easily be animation, the Grand Budapest Hotel, mm. and it's hardly surprising that animation is a very important part of Anderson's work. Uh, fantastic Mr. Fox obviously yep. is in there, but the one that you're going to talk to us a little bit about is uh, Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs, which is a lovely play on words of I love dogs because mm. he loves dogs. Uh, yeah, it, it's a stop motion uh, entry for him. It's his second one. Um, if you go through back through his career, like to even uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, he loves stop motion animation. It's it's such a big part of his filmmaking. I think there's also a section of it in The French Dispatch, the new one that's coming out. But this one is solely stop motion animation. It has the most intensely talented voice cast. Like, it's un, it's unbelievable the amount of famous people who will come on and say, yes, I'll do one or two lines for Wes Anderson. That's no problem at all. And it is very, very funny, uh, considering it's basically the story of a boy who's trying to find his lost dog. You wouldn't think there's a lot to it. it it's not coming at you with like the emotional heaviness yeah. of a Pixar film, but it is so, so funny. Well, let's have a listen to a scene featuring Ed Norton playing, voicing the part of Rex and Chief being voiced by Brian Cranston. Wait a second. Before we attack each other and tear ourselves to shreds like a pack of maniacs, let's just open the sack first and see what's actually in it. It might not even be worth the trouble. I don't know. What do you think? I'm not sure. Maybe. Hi. 
A rancid apple core, two worm-eaten banana peels, a moldy rice cake, a dried-up pickle, tin of sardine, bones, a pile of broken eggshells, an old smushed-up rotten gizzard with maggots all over it. Okay, it's worth it. Get out of here and don't come back. You certainly would go get out of here and not come back if you heard that. And whispered into your ear, Ed Norton and Brian Cranston there uh, in Isle of Dogs. Wes Anderson, our subject uh, for discussion this evening. Rory, uh, we, we touched on the visual aesthetic that we get in Grand Budapest Hotel and mm-hmm. that's there in the animated side of things as well. But what about the type of worlds that Wes Anderson actually creates, the weirdness of them? How weird are they and how real are they? Well, I think they're... With Budapest, I think it's it's more relatable than most. Some of his films maybe, maybe take you out of it a little bit. I think Life Aquatic is one of his weaker ones because it just goes off the quirky deep end way too much. But with Royal Tenenbaums, I think it really tapped into the vein of most families are dysfunctional in one way or another. And he has given this lovely uh, mosaic of a family that's broken in pretty much every single way that a family can be broken. And we have Gene Hackman, who's playing a truly unlikable man, trying to do a decent thing before he figures he might just, this might be the last thing he ever does. Uh, and again, this is the first time he's kind of coalesced this magnificent cast. He's the, the Wilson brothers are there in this as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and Ben Stiller and uh, Bill Murray again, and Angelica Houston. Like it, the, the cast is insanely stacked. Uh, and this is, I feel, Wes Anderson's kind of boot out into the world where he's like, this is what I'm capable of when I'm given the chance. And this is the one that kind of got everyone's attention. And rooting something, uh, you know, that, that rooting uh, the kind of aesthetic that he has around a weird and wonderful world, rooting it in a family, does that give it a level of reality that makes it more accessible? I think because you have a way in with the characters in some way or another, you will then forgive no matter how weird and quirky he goes. To an extent, like which is mm. why Budapest and Tannenbaum's and Isle of Dogs works so well, is because they are very funny and he describes these characters so intelligently. Rory Cash in there on Wes Anderson. And that's it from Arena for this evening and indeed for 2021. We'll be back at 7pm next Monday, January the 3rd, 2022. Until then, may I wish you and all yours a very happy and safe 2022. And likewise to you, Sean. That, of course, was Sean Rocks presenting the last arena, as you said, of 2021. And tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. 